When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. We're talking politics today. Here's our host, Georgina Godwin, with more. Today, liberalism faces threats from across the political spectrum. While right-wing populists and leftist purists righteously violate liberal norms, theorists of liberalism seem to have little to say. My guest today, Joshua L. Chernus, bucks that trend. He's Associate Professor of Government at Georgetown University, and in his new book, Liberalism in Dark Times, he issues a rousing defence of the liberal tradition. He joins us now to tell us more about it. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me, Georgina. I wonder if we could start with a really basic question, and that is, what is liberalism? That's an excellent question, and a difficult question, actually, even though it's a simple one, since liberalism means a great many different things. It's used in a great many different ways, both historically and indeed today. The way that I use it in the book is to pick out and to identify and label a certain way of thinking about politics and of acting in politics. And this, first of all, is a way of thinking that really prioritizes individual freedom. Um, individual freedom understood primarily as the ability of individuals to make choices about how to live their own lives, how to act, how to worship, how to speak, how to associate, what employment to seek, how to spend their leisure time, and so on. And in order to preserve this kind of individual freedom, there's also a great emphasis on the danger of unlimited power or unrestrained action. And so liberal politics is limited politics. Liberal politics is politics that's defined by certain limits that are maintained or certain restraints that are imposed on people's ability to use power or exercise power over one another. And this can be institutional in the form of constitutions, separation of powers, representative government where the rulers can be removed from office, guarantees of rights. But there are also certain ethical 
restraints or limits that liberalism tends to emphasize, certain ways in which human beings should or shouldn't act to one another, even when that may constrain or may pose obstacles to the ability of those in politics to pursue their chosen goals. And in the book, you go into the thoughts of of four great intellectuals, and we will unpick that a little bit more later on. The book begins, though, with the theme of ruthlessness. And I wonder why ruthlessness is such an important problem for liberalism. Well, I think it's an important problem, first of all, because it simply is a problem. It simply is a very powerful human impulse which licenses or which encourages tremendously destructive action. And ruthlessness, as I describe it or define it, involves this rejection of limits on actions, the sorts of limits that liberals want to emphasize. Ruthlessness as an ethical stance or as a feature of character involves saying there is some one goal or one principle which must be served, and any kind of action that will serve this goal or which will uphold this principle is allowed, is encouraged, maybe is even obligatory. And so to be ruthless, to act ruthlessly or indeed think ruthlessly, is to reject and reject without regret or remorse or reservation these sorts of limits that liberals want to place on the exercise of power in order to protect individual freedom and safety. So ruthlessness challenges liberalism. Ruthlessness seeks to essentially override, overrun all of the limits that liberalism tries to set on the exercise of power in order to make political life, social life, a bit safer and more secure for individuals. But ruthlessness also poses a certain predicament for liberals, what I call in the book the liberal predicament, which is that if you're a liberal or if you're dedicated to a liberal vision of politics and you are confronted by opponents who are ruthless, who want to overturn liberal policies and liberal institutions and who will not stop or shrink from anything to do so, it's very hard to know how you can effectively combat or oppose them since your hands are tied by your own principles, by the institutions that you support, by the kinds of behavior that you may believe in maintaining. You may think that you should be tolerant of political difference, that you should allow your opponents to make use of all of their legal and political rights, whereas a really ruthless opponent will not be so concerned about abiding by the fair rules of the game or respecting um, their opponent's freedoms or their political rights. You know, a truly ruthless politician, if their opponent wins an election, will say, it's not a fair election, we should ignore it completely imaginary example there, of course, (laughs) and a really ruthless opponent, if they win an election, will then um, use that newfound power completely without limits, completely without scruple. So liberals are confronted with this problem of, do they seek to emulate or match 
the ruthlessness of their opponents. If they don't, they are very likely to be defeated in the rough and tumble of political conflict. But if they do emulate that ruthlessness, then they may undermine liberalism itself because they will wind up violating their own principles, their own policies, and thereby also further licensing or encouraging others to violate those norms and those policies. So this is the liberal predicament. It seems that either emulating the ruthlessness of your opponents or refusing to do so endangers the basic principles, the basic sustainability of liberalism. So what happens then when liberals find themselves in that predicament, when they're in a quarrel with somebody who really does oppose them or oppose liberalism root and branch? Well, it's a terribly difficult dilemma. And liberals, I think, frequently, as, as we indeed see today, frequently sort of cast about for a way of responding. I think that there's invariably a need to simply exercise a great deal of political creativity or canniness, simply try to figure out how to appeal to the public, how to put the case for liberalism clearly and effectively. There's a great need to know how to effectively use what um, institutional frameworks are available, what powers liberals have within the law, within existing norms. But I also think that there's a need to really think seriously about the relationship between political action and ethics, um, between political action and what you could call the self or the character of those engaged in politics. And one point that I try to make, and this is both a very vague and very imperfect way of responding, but I suggest that there has to be a combination of a certain pragmatism in action, a certain amount of flexibility over messaging and policy, with a certain ethical constancy or a certain ethical integrity, above all resisting the tendency to become ruthless, to start thinking and feeling and really internalizing the ruthlessness of opponents. I think that they shouldn't engage in extremely ruthless action. I think that doing so usually is self-defeating. But I think there does need to be a certain amount of flexibility in action combined with a, a sort of internal resistance to the lore of ruthlessness. And I think there ne also needs to be the articulation of a sort of counter ethic. One of the things that at least the anti-liberals that I look at in the book do is they advocate a certain anti-liberal ethic. They try to make the case that liberalism involves a rather ignoble and indeed contemptible sort of character. It is weak and soft and mediocre, and that true strength or heroism, greatness, virtue lies in the rejection of liberalism. And so I think that one thing that the figures I look at tried to do, and one thing that liberals have to do, is to advance an alternative ethical ideal or an alternative ethos to say that, no, actually, um, there are certain features of character or, or personality, certain virtues that go along with liberalism, that go along with respect for the freedom of others and insistence on limiting political power. And that this is actually a 
both a politically wise and morally noble way of being. Um, so defending liberalism and practicing liberalism really in terms of a certain ethical ideal that can serve as a counter to the sort of militant and ruthless ethical ideal of their opponents. And I guess then that's what you'd call tempered liberalism. Yes. So how does then tempered liberalism, as the book presents it, differ from other, perhaps more familiar forms of liberalism? Well, it differs in a couple of ways that I try to signal in the term tempered liberalism. So first of all, it is tempered in the sense of being tested and transformed and I think ultimately strengthened by adversity, by confrontation with particularly horrific forms of anti-liberalism and by the tremendous popular appeal and success of these forms of anti-liberalism and by the horrors that result, um, the horrors that are produced, the various revolutions and genocides and political campaigns of extermination that mark early 20th century politics. And so it is a form of liberalism that is much less hopeful or perhaps complacent, certainly less optimistic than many earlier forms and even some later forms of liberalism, which often involve a certain amount of faith or at least a reasonable hope or a pious hope, as different liberals put it, in progress, in the ability of human beings through education and through good, enlightened, liberal institutions to become better, more rational, more benevolent, and so on. Tempered liberals reject that sort of optimism. They still hope to minimize the power of anti-liberal forces, to minimize human suffering, to avoid the worst atrocities. But it's a much less confident form of liberalism than either some earlier liberals who believe in the march of progress or even more recent liberals who, who also, um, less so now perhaps, but certainly with the end of the Cold War, frequently thought that we were on the road to the end of history and the, the triumph, the global triumph of liberal democracy. It's also, though, different in that it is more concerned with features of temperament or character, and less with institutions, less with general principles of political morality, less concerned with providing institutional blueprints or designs, less concerned with offering justifications of certain prevailing institutions or policies than other more familiar forms of liberalism. That doesn't mean that Tempered liberals aren't concerned with institutions or policies, but they do lay much more emphasis on the importance of temperament or character, or what I in the book call ethos, and see their job or see their task as liberals and as political thinkers as articulating and also trying to exemplify or inspire or encourage the development of certain features of temperament, certain ways of being and ways of acting in the world that go beyond public policies, go beyond institutional frameworks, go beyond general codes, 
you know, if you look at many familiar forms of liberalism, there's an emphasis on constitutions. Constitutional design is something that goes straight through through from Benjamin Constant in the early 19th century, one of the first liberal thinkers, self-described liberal thinkers, up to someone like Friedrich Hayek. There's an emphasis on economic systems from Adam Smith to, again, Hayek. Um, there's an emphasis on principles of justice or principles of politics. And temperate liberals really turn away from these general principles, these general constitutional frameworks, um, these general economic or social policies to focus much more on matters of temperament and character. I'd like to just unpick that a little bit more. And we, we talked about sort of four main thinkers that, that you drill down mm -hmm. into. So what are the main historical claims or contributions of the book? Well, one of them, um, the, the simplest and in some ways smallest, though I hope not insignificant, is to provide fresh readings of these four figures and to both make a case for how interesting and important they were historically, and also to try to bring out certain features of their thought, which I think have often not been fully appreciated or not really connected together. Beyond that, though, I want to make two larger historical claims. One which I've already alluded to is that the ideological conflicts that really shaped and structured politics in much of the 20th century, certainly in the first half or so, and indeed into the Cold War, were not just defined by disagreements over policy, um, disagreements over certain general principles. So it's not just about the defense or critique of democracy or capitalism or parliamentarianism, not defined just by different visions of what liberty means or what equality means or commitment to different values, whether liberty, equality, national self-determination, etc. These are the things that many intellectual histories of 20th century politics tend to focus on. And they're certainly important, but I think that there's an additional dimension, which is an ethical dimension, that the critique of liberalism in the early 20th century is really a critique of a certain understanding of the relationship between politics and ethics and a critique of a certain kind of character or spirit associated with liberalism. And the figures who are the main players in this account were all particularly sensitive to that. In many cases, they were sensitive to it because they shared this critique. Um, so Reinhold Niebuhr, who's one figure I look at as a young man, actually attacks what he calls liberalism's gray spirit of compromise. And you get similar criticisms um, or similar expression even of contempt for liberalism from Albert Camus or Raymond Aron, even though Aron is himself a liberal from the beginning. There's this sense on the part of all of these figures that the critics of liberalism are right about something. They're right that liberals really are struggling to live up to the ethical demands of politics, that this critique of liberalism as involving either reflecting or fostering a weak, ignoble, 
contemptible form of character is something that should be taken seriously. The idea that both politics and morality, if you take them really seriously, impose demands to act beyond what liberalism allows, demands that liberals just are incapable of recognizing or living up to. This, this is an important critique for these thinkers. And so the response that they offer also centers on these questions of ethics, questions of character and conduct. And so in addition to making the general claim that debates about or disagreements about ethics and character are much more important to 20th century politics than is often recognized, I also am trying to reconstruct or draw out this particular strand of liberal response, which focuses on, as I've said, ethics and focuses on character, and which is distinct from, and in some ways really diverges from, the focus on institutions and policies on certain political and legal and economic theories that have more typically been identified as prominent in histories of 20th century liberalism. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So I wonder then if we could just have a quick look at each of those four men and what the core belief was that they each articulated. Yes, well, that, that is somewhat difficult in that one of the features of tempered liberalism is an appreciation for complexity. And so these are all four of them very complex thinkers. But I'll try to give something of a capsule summary and also say something about how I think each contributes to the overall shape of what I call tempered liberalism. So one thing that should be said is that 
all of them are in different ways through different routes inheritors of a problem, which is the conflicting demands as they see it of politics and morality or the, the importance of acting in politics in ways that will be successful versus fidelity to certain moral ideals. So they're, they're all struggling with that as well as struggling with how to respond to the anti-liberal onslaught on liberal politics in the interwar period. Most of them come of age in the interwar period. The exception is Reinhold Niebuhr, who's a bit older. Niebuhr is an American theologian of German descent who in the interwar period is a leading left-wing public intellectual as well as religious leader in the United States. And he comes in this period quite close, although he doesn't entirely embrace it, but quite close to a form of revolutionary socialism. Um, he's a critic of the industrial policies that dominate in Detroit, where he starts his career as a preacher. He's a critic of the New Deal from the left. He's a critic of American isolationism. And he really, through the period from the 20s up in, into the 1970s, although he becomes a bit less active with age, um, but he's really a leading public intellectual in America. And he is both someone who, at least in his maturity, is a defender of liberalism, um, a defender of basic liberal institutions, but also a fairly serious Augustinian Christian. So someone who very much believes in the reality of original sin, but also analyzes this more or less empirically. He, he frequently said that original sin is the one Christian doctrine or dogma that is empirically verifiable, which perhaps casts some of the other Christian dogmas into doubt in a way that's surprising from a theologian. But in any case, he devotes much of his career to really thinking about how one can struggle for justice or struggle for a better world while recognizing the power of human psychological propensities to sinfulness and to self-righteousness in being sinful, the tendency to justify to oneself um, one's bad actions, to deny that one is actually um, motivated by ignoble or dubious motives and that one is acting in ways that reflect arrogance, pride, aggression, a desire to dominate others, and that one clothes these impulses under a mantle of righteousness. So Niebuhr really stresses the need for self-examination for not just humility, although he does stress the importance of humility or modesty and the ability to criticize oneself, but also the importance of contrition, of really accepting one's faults, acknowledging them, and really struggling with them. And he also insists on the importance of dialogue and irony, of being open to dialogue with others, learning from others, correcting one's own views through dialogue with others, and also the ability to be, as he put it, both in the battle and above it, to be both committed to a cause, but also be able to step back from that cause and reflect on what you're doing. And that sort of 
ironic distancing from oneself or ability to stand back from oneself a bit is something that one sees in really all of these figures, but especially, I think, also Raymond Aron and Isaiah Berlin. Now, Aron is, and I'm going in a different order than I do in the book, I should say. I'm, I'm going chronologically here. Um, so Aron is the second oldest of the figures. He's a leading French philosopher and sociologist, um, famous as a classmate and longtime antagonist of Jean-Paul Sartre. And Aron is, again, someone who although he never goes quite as far to the left as Niebuhr, is critical of many features of liberalism in the interwar period. Indeed, after he, he does think that liberalism needs to toughen up quite a bit. He is particularly worried about the political innocence of both liberals and anti-liberals, um, the way in which they just don't take the limits in what one can do in politics seriously, that they, they don't think responsibly, they don't think realistically about what political action demands. And so he really emphasizes the need to cultivate prudence, to cultivate care in studying reality and in both recognizing one's capacity for invention or creation or transformation, um, but also to resist wishful thinking um, and to resist really grand, unrealistic goals or ambitions. He and Niebuhr both, I think, get at, but don't quite fully develop something that is much more fully developed by Isaiah Berlin, who is the figure that I've, I've written about the most outside of this book, and probably the figure most familiar to your listeners. British philosopher, though, born in the Russian Empire, historian of ideas, leading exponent of liberalism in the English-speaking world in the mid-20th century, and someone who also, to an extent that's not, I think, frequently appreciated, was concerned with these problems of political ethics and with the, the liberal predicament, which is a term that I actually take from Berlin, concerned with this from really childhood onwards. He wrote about these problems even as a schoolboy. And he developed this doctrine of value pluralism, which holds that there are many genuine values which make genuine demands on us. Um, so he was not a relativist or subjectivist. He did, he did believe that values were real in some sense, but that they conflict with one another, that they pull in different directions, and that living a good moral life and living a successful political life means having to navigate between and make sacrifices or choices involving some amount of loss between different values. So this again involves emphasizing imperfection, the need to accept certain limits, the need to try to balance between different values to be moderate, to try to hold different considerations, different perspectives in view, not to be single-mindedly committed to any single value, single goal, to remember that there are always other important considerations. He also connected to this 
was, I think, even more than Nibor and Eron, although this was a concern of all of theirs, but even more than they really worried about ruthlessness and really put ruthlessness at the center of what he opposed and what he thought liberalism should be opposed to. So he gives an articulation of liberalism that doesn't just involve prioritizing a certain view of liberty or a certain moral doctrine, which are the things most frequently associated with him, but also really a form of liberalism or a vision of liberalism defined around this opposition to ruthlessness and the cultivation of a temperament that is anti-ruthless, that is, is careful and scrupulous. Now, the fourth figure is in some ways the odd man out in that he was less closely identified with liberalism, and he's also less frequently thought of, perhaps, as a political thinker or philosopher, and that's Albert Camus, uh, who, of course, was a great French novelist, a creative writer of not only novels, but plays and short stories, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, someone who, again, had, as a young man, been one of those who revolted against liberalism, uh, someone who joined the Communist Party as a young man, someone who even into the 1940s was quite contemptuous of the compromises, the, the moral mediocrity, the, the willingness to sacrifice principles of justice that he associated with liberalism. But he came to embrace liberalism again based on his recognition of the need for limits and the way that the pursuit of any ideal without regard for limits, without respect for other human beings and the way that they might be harmed by the pursuit of any goal or ideal, how this becomes inhumane and murderous. And he really emphasizes again, as a novelist, as a reporter, the importance of really attending closely to the realities of human life, the realities of human beings, um, really looking at how one's actions are affecting others and not being blinded by an infatuation with grand slogans or ideals. And he also articulates, as I think all of, all of these figures do, Camus especially, what you could call an ideal of unheroic or anti-heroic heroism. Um, so an ideal of heroism that really stresses humility, normality, modesty, composure, the quiet and sober pursuit of goals that one knows one will fall short of as an alternative to the macho and aggressive and glorious or vainglorious model of heroism advanced by anti-liberals. I mean, you could be talking about US politics today. The, the, the book is called Liberalism in Dark Times, and mm. these dark times are in fact, absolutely now. So what do you think that revisiting these authors now have to teach us today about our own times? Well, I think that first of all, they do just sensitize us to certain problems. And above all, the way in which the appeal of anti-liberal politics is certainly partly about matters of policy, matters of material interests. But it is also 
a matter of what I call ethics. If you look at the politicians who controversially and, and perhaps inaccurately, although that's a big question, um, the politicians who are referred to now as populists, what you see is that they don't only emphasize economic policies, trade policies, immigration policies that have an appeal to populism or nativism um, or xenophobia or, or what have you. They're also making appeals to or they're selling a certain ethical ideal or character. You know, Donald Trump ran on the platform of make America great again. And his rhetoric is just awash with references to greatness, to winning, to dominating. A lot of his appeal has to do with the fact that he is ruthless. He is tough. He is unscrupulous. And that's something that I think many people respond to. It's also something that is contagious. Um, once ruthlessness becomes politically accepted or legitimized, it can have this infectious quality, which is very dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous in what it encourages or allows people to do, that they not only feel licensed or feel freed from any restraints on acting ruthlessly, they're actually encouraged to do so because they know that acting ruthlessly will demonstrate, they think, their, their strength, their power, and make them more appealing. So these figures are very conscious of that force and, and how powerful it is, how dangerous it is. And the need to respond not just with a response on the level of policy or institutional design, you know, new laws, new policies, new proposals. These are all certainly important. But so is, first of all, attention to ethics, attention to character, attention to psychology, and resistance to this spread of ruthlessness, this spread of a, a sort of anti-liberal spirit, perhaps into liberalism itself. And I think one of the frightening things that one sees is not only just how appealing many anti-liberal politicians can be, but the way that liberals often feel that in order to be effective in response, they have to emulate that. They have to become similarly ruthless in their postures and their stances and also in their policies. And that, I think, does tend to be a, a losing battle for liberals. Now, that being said, I think these figures don't point to a, I wish that they did, but I don't think that they point to a clear solution or a clear answer. I think that they suggest the need, again, to think about ethics, be attentive to the dimension of ethics or ethos, um, attentive to this dimension of both the danger of certain forms of character or conduct, but also the power of certain forms of, of character or conduct. Um, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr was someone who at certain points in his career, um, because he was so preoccupied with foreign policy, with World War II and then the Cold War, didn't pay enough attention to the civil rights struggle in America. But he, he did come to recognize his error in that regard and to really um, respect the accomplishments of the civil rights struggle. And he identified Martin Luther King Jr., who himself had been very influenced by Niebuhr's earlier work, um, as one of the most creative 
politicians of the day. And what was creative about King was the way that he was able to translate, to communicate, and to encourage a certain ethos through his action, that he melded together political strategy with the cultivation of a certain spirit and the communication of why that spirit was so important. And these thinkers all sought in less directly political or public-facing ways to do something like that. I just want to look at the way that the message is delivered, though, because, of course, in this day and age, we have all these digital platforms. And I wonder if a platform like Twitter, for instance, completely skews that debate. Yes, I, th I think that these figures were fortunate in not living in the era of Twitter. You know, Twitter is good for a number of things, but it does, I think, not just Twitter, but I, I think media generally, certainly new media, but also to some extent old media, emulating new media, does, I think, develop in us this certain addiction to outrage. This is something that I certainly notice in myself, that you, you become sort of addicted to logging on to Twitter or Facebook or what have you to get your little jolt of indignation at what people are saying or doing. I wonder, though, where liberalism sits alongside our current state of cultural warfare and cancel culture, where people are told that they have the freedom of speech to say whatever they like, except that they don't. Yes. Well, I think that what concerns me particularly in what's called frequently cancel culture, which is, is quite a, a complicated thing, really, because there are a number of different elements or practices that I think fall under that label. But one thing that does worry me about it is the degree of vehemence and the degree of, again, not recognizing others as human um, or not recognizing human beings as all complicated and fallible and needing a certain degree of charity or forgiveness, which again goes back to Niebuhr's somewhat theologically freighted language. You know, one, one of the things that I find worrying about some forms of cancel culture isn't, you know, calling people out for things that they say now, um, which, you know, might deserve criticism, but the way in which any misstep one has ever made continues to be held against one. And one is not really, I think, allowed to grow or allowed, for that matter, to clarify one's views or develop one's views. I think that's bad both because it's frequently unjust to people and in, involves punishing people or ostracizing people for things that they did a long time ago or things that have been not fully understood. But it prevents all of us from learning. It prevents the, the objects of cancellation from really engaging with their critics and learning, as well as it prevents their critics from learning by engaging with the people who are being canceled. So it is, you know, what I describe in the book at one point as a shouting match among the deaf, where people just aren't really listening to one another. And again, you know, I think that there are many cases that are alleged examples of canceling, which you know, really are criticizing people, and criticism is perfectly fair and important. Um, but what I think is important in thinking about cancel culture is the culture part of it, is the idea that there are these larger norms or 
habits of thought and feeling, this larger ethos, that really is very closed-minded and intolerant, and that I think will impoverish our ability to learn from one another and thus also to cooperate politically. And cer certainly, you know, one of the sad things is, particularly at a time when liberalism is under assault, to see people who might support liberalism, might defend liberalism, really falling out with one another and being unable to come together because they take matters of, you know, very serious and important disagreement, but they take those as completely throwing out of the question, making completely impossible any form of coming together on other issues where they might be allies. Unfortunately, we don't have a great deal of time left, but what are your predictions then for the, for the, for the health, really, of liberal values? Well, this is a, a hard and, for me, embarrassing question because I, I am a historian and am much more comfortable talking about what has happened than what will happen, and particularly because the history of prediction is, is a, a pretty inglorious history. I think that we certainly are in dark times. Prospects are not good. But one thing that a lot of these figures that I, I look at really emphasized is the importance of human action, um, the extent to which the outcome of events does depend not on the actions of single individuals, but of many individuals acting. Um, so I do think that it the um, survival of liberalism in the short term or the flourishing or, or sort of revival of liberalism in the short term is perhaps improbable, but certainly not impossible. And it's something that is, is I think, certainly worth working for. I also think that there is some hope, although it's a perhaps rather tempered hope, a somewhat grim hope, that while liberalism is extremely demanding and frustrating, it does also speak to certain fundamental needs and values and interests of most human beings. Most human beings don't want to be the victims of anti-liberalism. They don't want to be the victims of persecution, of ruthless action, of intolerance. And I think that, unfortunately, we may have to, as, as Camus in particular warned, we may have to go through a great deal of suffering from the effects of anti-liberalism to relearn the lesson that Camus and his contemporaries learned. But I think that that lesson is still available to us. Um, and that is the importance of defending liberalism, defending liberalism in combination with various other things. Um, I don't think that liberalism should exclude other political or economic agendas or policies, but the importance of qualifying any political goal or cause with certain liberal restraints if we're to avoid the kind of inhumanity the kind of horror that none of us really wants to be the victim of. And, you know, it, it's very much a reflection of our own time that I think of this. But one of the things that I talk about extensively in the chapter on Camus is his novel, The Plague. And of course, it's an all too timely account of living within a pandemic. But in the novel, The Plague, 
means not just a literal pandemic, but also a certain psychological syndrome, which is anti-liberal, which does, does involve rejection of the values of liberalism. And Camus' message is that people can endure the plague, people can make it through and come back from it, but that it is always lurking and that we do periodically need to be reminded of our own vulnerability and of the horrors of plague by having it visited upon us. And so I think the sad thing, the tragic thing, and the pessimistic view is that we do seem to need to go through occasional disasters in order to be reminded of the importance of liberalism and the evils of anti-liberalism, the evils of ruthlessness. But we can learn from that and we can come back. And we do just have to be, like Camus' heroes in that book, vigilant and patient and enduring while we go through both the, the literal and figurative plagues that we face today. Excellent words to live by. Joshua, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Joshua L. Chernus and Joshua's book, Liberalism in Dark Times, The Liberal Ethos in the 20th Century, is published by Princeton University. It's out now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.